Greetings and welcome to the Pops Collection, where we dissect and reflect on a movie or TV show from my Pops Collection. I'm Ron Tweedy, joining me as Pops, and today we're going to be talking about Dick Tracy. Greetings. How's everybody doing? Hope well. Hope you have your coffee for our second ever comic strip review yep. uh, from my comic strip collection. So, That's right. Um, I don't even know if have we done any of my graphic novel collections yet. I don't know. Maybe we should look at that. Yeah, graphic novel and comic book are very fuzzy categories, in my opinion. You know, what makes a graphic novel you know, a comic book and the yeah. So well, I guess a graphic novel could kind of be like an annual. Yeah, well, like for instance, you know, Daredevil season one is basically Daredevil: Man Without Fear, which was a you know. It was compiled into a trade paperback that was almost written like a graphic novel, so you can make that case. I, I would make the case about that one. Well, let me say this, though. One Christmas when you bought me The Walking Dead graphic novel, yeah, that actually uh, took all of season one and part of season two Yeah, was in that one graphic novel. And I think that was, they called it an omnibus, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So. But yeah, and after its popularity, it became a regular comic. Right. Right. But it was in the beginning, uh, the first two seasons were the actually the graphic novel writer and artist. He chose to do things on that. But anyways, right. right. We're going to be talking about comic strip today. Uh, Dick Tracy. Yep. And did you know, from what I, I heard, it was originally called Plain Clothes Tracy. Okay. Yeah, I didn't know. I, that, I, know. I, I didn't. I never knew that before, but I saw it in two different places, so I figured, well, yeah. hey, if it's on the internet, it must be true. Sure. No. Sure. Anyways, uh, let's get started with, before we get into the movie, I'm going to go over some of the history. The uh, Please do. What do you call it? The uh, material, right? The uh, source material. Uh-huh. Okay. It was actually created by Chester Gould. Right. In uh, the 1930s. It debuted on October 4th in 1931. Mm, okay. And uh, so it's been around for quite a long time. And he actually not only drew the comic strip, but he also wrote the stories for it. Right. And he did that all the way to 1977. Wow. So he was doing that for 46 years. And uh, he did choose to do studies to keep informed about police methods. Right. He took courses in forensics and also in investigative procedures. Mm -hmm. And he actually introduced uh, his ideas, the two-way wrist radio... Yep. And the closed circuit TV were things that uh, he introduced in 1946 and 47 before they were ever even a thought of being something used for police work. Right. Gotcha. A man ahead of his times. Also, uh, I think you would love the way that he chose to write his stories Uh because he would write his little Sunday page or whatever. Yep. And really not know where it was going to go. And so he would just be writing on the fly. And I think that's what made it popular with a lot of people in the beginning. Yeah. Although the uh, newspaper did go through quite a few many different changes politically, he tended to, he was a Christian, by the way. Hmm. Uh, And so he did tend to, uh, express his views, which were not always the views of a lot of his readers. Right, yeah, and I know he was a police rights advocate and a, a couple other things there that also kind of made him, you know, looking back, you know, especially nowadays, people don't have the best opinion of cops, which, you know, right or wrong, obviously there's there's bad cops, there's good cops, and, you know, we don't want to necessarily go down that road, but uh, that was one thing that is part of the legacy of, of Chester Gould's vision of uh, uh, portraying the cops in a, in a positive light. Right. And which he did. And right. uh, we'll go through later, once we get into the movie, the number of criminals that he came up with. But uh, 
Anyways, it was so popular that it actually, when the, in the movie theaters, it started off with four uh, serials. Remember I told you about those cliffhangers? Uh-huh. They, uh, and uh, they did, the first one was called Dick Tracy, then Dick Tracy Returns, then Dick Tracy's G-Men, then Dick Tracy versus Crime, Inc. And they were so popular that they did four movies after that. Mm. And then two TV series, uh, a live TV series in the 1950s, 57, and uh, I'm sorry, 50 and 51. And then they did an animated Dick Tracy show, Mm -hmm. 1961 and 62, till finally we're going to get to the movie that we're interested in, 1990. Warren Beatty, who who was the producer and the director, and he also starred in it. Right. He got the rights to do that from a company. Oh, my gosh. I have the name. <laughs> uh, anyways, uh, he got the rights to do that, and it took almost six years for it to finally come to fruition after that. Right. But good movie. Didn't do real well at the box office. Uh, Disney... Uh, considered it a failure. Yeah. Even though it made almost three times what it cost to make it. Yeah, see, I don't get that at all. Me neither, because, uh, well, I'm sure you enjoyed it, right? Um, Parts of it I really enjoyed. I wanted to like it more than I actually ended up liking it. I want to like this movie a lot, but there's just, uh, we'll, we'll get could. to it. But, yeah, hey. there's just, I think we'll, we'll, as we come to it the thing is like everything uh around this movie is fascinating and uh, very interesting i think the story about the movie is almost as compelling as the actual story in the movie itself yes yes and you know that it got seven uh, academy award nominations interesting and it actually won three wow uh one for the best original song uh, which was uh Written by Stephen Sondheim. Right. Best makeup. Can yes. you imagine that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I got to... And also, best art direction. Oh, yeah. Which I thought was very, very interesting because... Yeah. Well, to our listeners, I'm going to suggest that you watch it and watch it with an open mind and really yeah. pay attention to the makeup and to... The scenery and the arts. They actually did the whole movie on sound studios. Yes, you'd have, you'd have to with what the art direction they were going to go. There's just no way they could have done it uh, outdoors. It just I think the, the lighting would have messed up things. So um, you know the story behind the story, do you? Um, not, not so much the story behind the story, but just how, uh, you know, I watched a number of... Uh, behind-the-scenes specials in preparations for this episode and just how this really was a passion project for Warren Beatty. I mean, he just, you know, he was obsessed with it. He still, to this day, owns the rights to the character, and the only way he was able to keep up the rights is if he did something additional. And so there was this TV special where he was being interviewed uh, by Leonard Maltin about Dick Tracy, and he was, as Dick Tracy, being interviewed. So kind of crazy um so that that for me is by far uh, an interesting thing uh an actor who is so obsessed with this one character that he has you know spent a lot of time and resources to execute that vision and he still is holding on to it this day in his uh i think he's in his 80s now so yes he could be uh a little older than that but you're you're right yes it actually took him uh he had the dispute. He had bought the rights from uh, Tribune Media right, Services. That's, that's the paper that uh, ran the... Uh, yeah, right. Chicago Tribune. Right. Uh, which they, at that time, were multimedia. They had yeah. uh, owned a lot of things. They were a really, really big company. Right. And uh, I don't know if you're aware of this, but they chose to... They were going to have a Dick Tracy TV show... While he still, after he had made the movie, because they were wanting to get the rights back, and they were waiting for him to, 
he wasn't doing anything. So it took them until, oh, I'm going to say 23 years before. It was a long time before they settled this dispute. Right. Where he actually, Warren Beatty, the judge, he made the settlement for Beatty. Right. To do it. But they had already had hired a director and they were starting to film some TV shows uh-huh. that they were going to try and put out to kind of steal it from under him. But mm. did not work out for them. Not in a good way anyways. Right. Uh, so, like you said, very passionate. And uh, what did? how did you feel about the story itself? See, that, that to me is the weakest part of the film is the story. Now... I mean, I, I think part of it has to do with the fact that I mean, when when you look at the the source material, um, Chester Gould would write all of these uh, interesting villains, right? And you know, typically they would have a couple weeks arc or whatever, and then they would, in most cases, they would meet some sort of grisly death, or they're written out and they don't ever come back. So you have a movie that kind of takes like you know years and years of character development and kind of slams them all together in one so it for for me it was very hard as i was taking notes watching the film to kind of keep up with what was going on in the screen it goes a lot of different places and you know the the story for me was seemed a little bit like they just kind of tried to cram as much as they could into that to the one film uh you know i guess i i've been spoiled by marvel because they tell a story that's much more straightforward and they have a, a an arc. So like, you know, if they they could have taken this story, I think, and uh, spread it over, you know, at least two or three movies and I think it might have been worked a little bit better from a story perspective. But uh, to your point earlier, everything else about this movie is incredible. I mean, the production design, the costumes, the makeup, the cast is insane. I think this is the most star-studded cast we've seen in a, in a film from your collection at this point. I mean, so many uh, very big stars came in here to portray characters sometimes that would look nothing like the actors look like themselves. And so it's, it's pretty incredible. Oh, yes. As a matter of fact, a lot of them didn't look like themselves. Right. But to your point, when they did the... Saturday morning animated Dick Tracy show. Yeah. Dick Tracy was basically in the beginning of the show. Mm-hmm. And then they had a uh, Oriental detective and they had a dog detective. Uh, but uh, Itchy and Prune Face and Flat Top and them, they were reoccurring characters. They'd never killed them off. But that, of course, has to do with Saturday morning cartoons back sure. in the day. Right. If you had a gun, they could only like shoot in the air or they, you know, they had to beat them with a billy club or something like that. They couldn't, right. you know, no deaths. Right. But yes, incredible amount of stars, like you said. And to extent, I'm going to have to say that they really, really did a good job, each actor, of portraying the character. Oh, yeah. Uh, Dustin Hoffman as Mumbles. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and uh, William Forsythe, who played Flat Top. Yep. There is no way that you could tell that was William Forsythe. No, no, no. Yeah, looking at the uh, interviews that they that I saw behind the scenes, and you had, you know, William Forsythe, like you said, it's, it's uncanny how... Uh, how much he was transformed into the the character. So, yeah. Right. A lot of them were that way. Small face. Yeah. Which I, I I think that, I think that that was Gould's, uh, his homage to baby face Nelson, you know? Uh, Okay. Uh, That's what I thought anyways, because he was a real gangster, Uh you know? And one thing that you've got to remember about this type of story, a crime story like this, uh, especially it was, the story is based in the 30s, 1938, I think is uh, yes, where that, the story starts off. That's right. In those days, that crime was the way crime was. You know, you're talking about after Prohibition, so, yeah. you know, all those things, every crime movie 
I remember I mentioned that there was uh, four movies and like I said, four serials. Their basic stories were the same. It was always Dick Tracy was going after some gangster mm -hmm. one way or another. Yeah. Uh, they even had the mummy. Uh, Boris Karloff portray a uh, villain in uh -huh. one of the Dick Tracy movies. But not as the mummy? No, he was called Gruesome. Okay. That it was Dick Tracy versus Gruesome. Okay. And they actually had a guy that had a bald head. He was a kind of a bald guy. He almost looked like Uncle Fester. Okay. In uh, the Adams family. Yeah. But it was called Dick Tracy versus Cue Ball. Okay. So, but those were actual movies, so it's crazy. Yeah, uh, and I, I know later on in the comics, Gould did like some really wacky stuff with the character. Like I know they put him in space at some point, and so you know, there, there, it's it that wasn't really well received. I think that the other part that makes Dick Tracy a compelling character is the fact that he's, you know, grounded and like he's a, you know on the streets. Same thing with a lot of the the daredevils of of the world, you know, fighting crime, you know, at the street level. You know. Right. Well, they there did there did come a time when he actually had them in almost like a basket, like a uh oh my gosh. You know the thing that they cut trees? There's a basket, but they had a flying thing that they could fly around in. Uh huh. And I think that was towards the same era. Right. Even though it, before they would go to space they would be able to uh, do characters like that. It was kind of crazy, but yeah. worked out pretty good. What did you think about Paul Sorvino's lips? Yeah. Um, well, you know how much I love Paul Sorvino with uh, his portrayal specifically as uh, Eddie Valentine in The Rocketeer. So, um, you know, much love for him. Uh, but yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was a pity that he wasn't in the movie longer. No. I mean, really? You're going to just, that's it? <laughs> you know. But, you know, Big Boy had to get rid of him, I guess. Yeah. So he could have the club. And your mom, I have to tell you, your mom really, really was laughing so hard. Yeah. When Big Boy was teaching Madonna yes. and the other girls to do the song. Yeah. She yeah. just thought that was hilarious. Yeah, Al Pacino's performance in this one. So there's a idiom that's used called chewing the scenery i don't know if you're aware of that term but basically it's how uh characters typically on stage would emote in such an exaggerated way to bring attention to themselves and kind of really sell what they're doing and how crazy their performance is and al pacino is chewing the scenery and everything that he's doing i mean he is so over the top so crazy it's like what would happen if you made uh his characters tony montana from Scarface and Michael Corleone, and you made them into a cartoon. That that was Al Pacino's performance. I mean, it it, it works. It's it, it's crazy, but I mean, he's just yeah. It, he he does a good job with B, Big Boy Caprice. He, he does. He at definitely. Well, everybody did a great job. Yeah. Uh, and another thing too, since uh, we were talking about Paul Servino not getting a uh, very large part. Uh, mm. We're going to have to go with Spud Spaldini not having a very long part either. Yeah. Yeah, that was uh, James Caan, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So he had another Godfather actor, you know, that played brothers in the movie, the movies. And, uh, yeah, him meeting a, a similar grisly demise instead of getting shot up by his car. He just has the car blow up on him. So Yes. Uh, it's just crazy. But, again, everybody... R.G. Armstrong is prune face. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Everybody was just perfect for their role. And the colors were stunning. Yeah. yeah. Red so car, blue car, you yeah. name it. Yeah, so let's talk about that a little bit. So that was another uh, production decision that they made to do because, you know, a little bit of history lesson when uh, newspapers started printing comics in color, uh, they had four primary colors to... Uh, work with red blue green and yellow right exactly um or you know the the technical terms you know they have cyan magenta yellow and black those are the cmyk is the uh um, abbreviations that printers use anyway uh so because of that the uh 
uh, decision was made that we're only going to stick to those primary colors and blends of those primary colors. So you have, you know, red, green, blue, yellow, purple, and orange. Orange. And yes. black seven and white. colors, actually. Yeah, right. Seven. It's, yeah. And so that that is every everything in this movie is one of those seven colors. And to me, you gotta you gotta give them a lot of credit, especially to the arts. Remember that they yeah. got an Academy Award for that. Yeah, that being able to take those colors and just stick to them and make it look right. the way that it did. You're absolutely right. Yeah, and the other part that I do appreciate is the way they did a lot of the shots. Um, sometimes when they would uh, do a scene. You would have them, uh, you know, kind of flat up against the wall. Uh, and it really, the way they framed the shots a lot of times, especially for like, you know, um, secondary shots or reaction shots, it really tried to make it framed in the way of a, of a comic strip panel would be. So I thought that was really cool. And a lot of times the background is just a blank color, like a, like a solid color. You know, to right. kind of go back to that particular thing. So I thought, like I said, the production design was just brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. It, it puts you into a different world than what you, nothing like you've ever seen in a live action movie before. That is true. And I specifically love the red couches. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I thought... I wonder if there ever really was red couches like that. I'm sure there had to have been. Yeah, but... there's there is no there's no CG in this movie at all. Everything is practical effects, miniatures, matte paintings, and I, I can just assume that there was some poor schlub on the production team that had to like sit there and paint every single you know stair step like bright green, put like four coats on it to get it the right shade because they they don't you know it, it's it is that primary color. And that color, so like a guy's jacket is the same color green that is on that street post or whatever. Right, so think about their budget was $46 million. Right, yeah. And uh, like I said, they made, uh, actually, I kind of thought I would calculate it because when I read that Disney wasn't going to go with the sequel because they thought it was a flop, uh, 162.7 mil. Right. Which is actually over three and a half times what uh, the cost was. Right. I mean, that's not a success. Well, I wonder if that, um, if those earnings are over the course of the movie's life. If it wasn't, a, you know, I, I guess particularly when you're measuring a film's success now, there, there's a lot more things taken into consideration. In fact, for instance, I, I know the biggest consideration they have now is uh, the international markets. They're even more important than they were uh, back then. So, you know, uh, it, we talked about that sometimes. Even that will change details in the story in order to make sure that they don't offend a, a Chinese audience or, or, or what have you. So Correct. I, yes. I have, I'm wondering if the uh, the number you said about the revenue is over the lifetime of the movie. So like VHS sales and, uh, you know, things after after the fact. Mm, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm so. not sure. I'll, I will have to look into that. Yeah. But I... Like I said, it was, you know, Disney, it was another Disney thing. So, you know, Disney is really hip on the vibrant colors and stuff. And like we had just discussed, the story. Yeah. Not, it really was no different than any other uh, type of story at that time. There were a few little tiny rabbit holes here and there that they tried to make the story more interesting, but it was a typical crime story. Yeah, it, it does remind me a lot of uh, Batman, uh, the 89 Batman, which makes sense because, you know, uh, production-wise, I mean, you could definitely tell there was a unique style to that as well. It wasn't like this, but it was very unique on its own, uh, you know, reflecting Tim Burton's uh, particular vision and then both of them happen to be scored by Danny Elfman so that's right they that, were both that's yeah. part of the thing he actually uh 
reflected back to the Batman movie when he came up with the score. Right. So, yeah, yes. and you, you did mention that they had, instead of uh, Prince doing the uh, soundtrack part of it, we had Stephen Sondheim come in, you know, famous yes, Broadway and, composer, and had him do songs specifically for the film. So, yes, which Madonna actually yeah. did uh, that when she was doing her concert. She sang that song. Right. That actually won the award. Uh-huh. When she was on stage uh, uh, doing her world tour, mm-hmm. she had somebody come out in a yellow trench coat and yellow hat. Right. So that that is part of the movie Breathless. Yeah. I don't know. I, you know, they tried to me, Warren Beatty tried to make uh, Tracy look like a goody two shoes guy. Right. You know? Yep. And I thought the times that he kissed her, it was like, really? He was made to look like, you know, the Boy Scout kid down the street, you know? Yes. And uh, then he kisses her, uh, not once, but twice, mm-hmm. you know? And, uh, of course, Tess, she's not happy about that. But right, right. I don't know. I just didn't... I thought that they could have done it in a way to where as he would reject it right at the last second, you know? But, hey, maybe he just wanted to kiss Madonna. I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) You know? But anyways, the story. Mm -hmm. Let's let's go. We can go through this story really, really, you know, quickly, I'm going to say. Good. Well, then, if you don't mind taking the lead, because I got really confused uh, throughout it, so. (laughs) Well, like I said, it was a very simple story. Uh, starts off, uh, we've got a street urchin, is what they used to call kids that lived on the street that needed to be in the orphanage, didn't have parents or whatever, that they would steal for a larger person, uh, an adult, in order to have food to eat or what have you. Uh-huh. Uh, he goes into an alley and happens to notice, or he goes into a warehouse or something he notices some gangsters playing cards small face prune face no prune face wasn't there oh okay it was brow i think yeah the brow you had stooge you had a couple other characters rodent rodent i think yeah yeah prune face isn't there because of what happens to them right after this particular scene right (laughs) correct correct all of a sudden we have a it's almost like a drive-by yeah. with a machine gun that they used to call Tommy guns. Right. You had flat top and itchy, right. I think. Yeah. Those are kind of like the car- henchmen, yeah, of this movie. Yes, the henchmen for... Uh, Big boy. Big Alphonse Caprice. Right. Which I think was maybe an homage to Capone. I don't know. Could have been. Uh, anyways, so, uh, they drive by and we get machine guns flying and nobody's winning the card game. No. They're all gone. So we're getting this thing where it's, there's a lot of criminals and we noticed again, uh, like you had mentioned, so many of the Tracy characters that would probably in the comic strip, be only there by themselves, or maybe two at the most. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but not the case in this particular one. Uh, we then have, uh, we go to Lip's place. Yep. Club Ritz. Yes, the Ritz, a <laughs> nightclub. And uh, we see that he's sucking down clams, or oysters. Yes, oysters, right. yeah. With his lips. Right. And, uh, of course, then we get to meet his head singer, Breathless, and she's singing the song that uh, made it uh, what it was, the movie, Mm -hmm. uh, that got the Academy Award. She then, uh, after she's done, she sits down with him, and she's kind of disgusted at his slurping. Right. Which he does a great job, you yes. know, for the little time. I so wish there was more time with him, but nope. I guess a couple of police officers come in, tell him that he needs to go downtown. Uh, but turns out not to be police officers. 
Again, something that the crime bosses do. But then again, some of them own the police officers. So we got that. And when he gets in the car, he's taken to this warehouse. Right. Which coincidentally looks like a few different warehouses because we see this scene more than once in the movie. Yeah. And then we see them go back to it again as it is the first time. And he's going, that's where he meets uh, Alphonse, Big Boy. Right. And Big Boy wants him to sign the club over to him. Yep. Because he's going to take over. Mm -hmm. And he says he's going to give him a bath. Right. Which he puts him in this box and uh, fills it full of cement. Right. So he's going to have cement shoes. And then they dump them in the water. Yep. Now we have Big Boy owns the club. And we get into the fact where uh, Dick Tracy uh, is trying to nail Big Boy. Yes. So, And that's basically what we get through a lot of the rest of the movies. He's bringing in characters. Mumbles, my favorite, Dustin Hoffman. Right. He does that great. Uh, and I, I'm thinking he's like the snitch. Sure. Because if you see, uh, there's times when uh, Big Boy is having a meeting with other crime bosses and he's kind of outside listening or looking. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if you noticed that. Yeah. But basically, Big Boy has got the club and now he wants to get everybody else together. And he wants to control all of the small businesses around the city. Uh, He mentioned that, you know, if uh, somebody, you know, has uh, dinner, we get five cents. If they get their hair cut, we get a dime, you know, and trying to take uh, over all the businesses. And that, of course, we know that uh, Spud... Doesn't agree with it, so right. he doesn't get the bath. He gets a fire sale. You know? Yes, yes. And so while all that's happening, Tracy, uh, we get this side view where Tracy finds the urchin and he's trying to feed him. And he, you see this relationship with him and his girlfriend, Tess Trueheart. Right. Who works in a florist shop or a garden shop, I guess. I don't know what you would call it. Sure. But uh, we've got that as our sidebar story. And then every once in a while, we get to see the police department and the different characters that they bring forth in there. Charles Durning, Dick Van Dyke plays the DA. Yes. Again, like you said, a plethora of... uh, Actors and actresses, and I do have to say the best scene that I enjoyed was the scene where he was interrogating Mumbles, and Kathy Bates was the stenographer trying to write down what Mumbles was saying. Yes, you know it was hilarious. You know, it's like yeah. really, what's he saying? But anyways, I, I'm dragging off the story. So basically, uh. Crime boss wants to get everybody together on the same page. Finally does. Tracy, somehow they break, they go into the club now that they know Big Boy owns it. And they do it with a facade that they're looking for something only so that they can drill a hole in the roof and put a guy up there with a microphone to listen to what Big Boy's doing. Yeah. And then they are solving all this issue and at the same time all of a sudden there's a guy that comes around that has no face and uh, he's saying he's going to get rid of Tracy uh, and then he's saying that he's going to he's kind of this you know mysterious character with no face Uh, basically the movie just Continues on Tracy trying to get Big Boy, Big Boy trying to get Tracy. Tess leaves because she thinks that Tracy's 
uh, likes his job more. The kid doesn't want to go to the orphanage. He's living with Tracy for a while. And then we get into this again. They frame Tracy that he's the bad guy. And when he is in jail, the crime bosses are doing well. So we go from Tracy getting the upper half to the crime boss getting the upper half. And we get into a scene where now all of a sudden the crime boss is being framed because the man with no face takes tests to the to big boys Ritz. Right, exactly. Yep. And then lets them know about it. Yeah. And so then we get that other big conflict there. But it's it's the same story, just told a little bit different way. And the bottom line is, the good guys win, the bad guys lose. Yeah. You know, I mean, basically. Yeah. That, that's the whole story in a nutshell. You know, we could go over specific things if you want to. But um, I'm just saying that uh, there's a lot of interesting things to discuss, to talk about other yeah. than the main story itself. Yeah. Or certain parts of the story might be things you'd like to talk about. No, I think you did a good job. That's fine. Like, you know, I'd like to talk about the cityscape. Please. please when do. they would show the cityscape. Yeah. It so, so looked like you said, like a... A little panel from the Sunday funnies. Yeah. You know, I mean, you could look at the buildings and they were kind of exaggerated, uh, but in colors that would be on the panels themselves. It was like incredible. They must have done lots and lots of research. As a matter of fact, uh, I heard some a story about the writers that they actually read all of the comics from the 1931 to uh, present date because it's actually still around, you know, different writers, but it is still around, you know, in some papers, not in every paper like it used to be. Yeah. You know, but just... I don't know. It was very stunning. I thoroughly enjoyed that. You know? Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And uh, I thought also the makeup for each character was very, very close to the comic drawings, the comic strip drawings. Yeah. Even the characters who weren't like didn't need a ton of makeup they still did a good job at uh, portraying them for instance uh mandy patankin as 88 keys the yes. uh, the hairline and the way they the way his mannerisms were were very very uh well done oh yes i mean to look at him and you know who he is and to see the changes that they made him and was just it was wonderful. Yeah. It was like, wow. The only one that they didn't really change was Madonna and uh, Tess. Yes, that's true. You know, oh, and Richard Durning. Yeah. Uh, they even uh, made up Dick Van Dyke. Mm-hmm. Even yep. with the eyes. Did you see the eyes that they had for him? Uh, I didn't notice that in particular. Yeah. Well, they did a great job for everybody. Shoulders. Yeah, uh, they made him, you know, with big shoulders. Uh, rodent, you could definitely tell just by looking at him. Even though, again, a short part, him and the brow uh, were had short parts in there. Henry Silva as influence, he was in for the majority of it, and it took me halfway through the movie to realize that that's who it was. Influence was uh, Pruneface's henchman. henchman. Right, right. But when you look at him, he you almost couldn't tell because I, they yeah. had done the makeup on him. Yep. Oh, and also, I loved my favorite, McFly. Yeah, as yeah. numbers, right? Uh, uh, yeah, or they called him in this movie, he was numbers, but they called him the accountant in this right. movie. Right, right. Uh, James Tolkien, right? 
or Tolkien, or I don't know how you say his name. Yeah, I don't either. But anyways, you could almost, I knew who it was, but you almost couldn't tell that it was. Yeah. yeah. Right. So again, they did a good job, but it was nice seeing them. And then also some young people, well, one in particular, Colin Meany, yep. who played a police officer. And, you know, to see his hair being short like that, not really curly and mm. and a lot thinner yeah. than he was. And then uh, also I wanted to mention uh, there was a character called Munger in there, and that was Ian Wolf. Okay. And that was actually his last role that he ever played. Uh-huh. He, was, he was Mr. Atos in episode 23 of season three of... Uh, the original Star Trek series. Okay. I don't know if you remember it, but it was like the librarian where the planet was going to... There was a supernova, so... Was that memory alpha? It was the one where the where they could go to different parts in the time, and Spock got stuck in a frozen time with Mary, Mary Lou Hartman. Is that uh, City on the Edge of Forever? Is that the one? Maybe it was. I can't remember the exact name of it. I wish I would have wrote that down. Yeah. But anyways, uh, that was actually his last film he ever did. Wow, okay. He was a character actor. He played the kind of role that he did, Munger, which was kind of like a a pawnbroker or something, you know? Yeah, okay. He kind of did those kind of roles in a lot of detective movies. Huh, okay. You know, so interesting that they kind of allowed him to do that again. Yeah. But the songs were good. The uh, score was very good. And I liked also, like I said, the uh, panels were done really, really well. Even the warehouses and everything. Oh, and uh, when he's chasing the kid Uh uh, and he goes back to the shack where he's at yeah and you see him uh dick tracy fighting the big bad adult that knocks him around yeah yeah and you see the shack going back and forth yeah yeah that's a cool touch (laughs) it was it was just like a comic you know oh yeah you know like saturday morning cartoon or something it'd be something that would be like that yeah okay so what else is on your mind um, you know, I think the the only real thematic element that I do want to talk about is um, just like the role of the police. So I, I do think that I'm trying to think of the right way to frame this. The the way that it, we, we have an adversarial justice system, meaning that if a person is guilty of the crime, it's the it's the responsibility of the state to prove that the crime happened and that the person that's on trial is guilty for it that i think is strictly uh or you know taken directly from a lot of biblical things happening in the law especially in leviticus um i think that's a good thing so that you know you have those scenes where they bring them in and they might have them in jail or interrogating them but they have to let them go because they don't have evidence and I, i you know that could be seen as a negative thing but actually i see that as a positive thing um that the the you know the innocent until proven guilty that type of thing um i think it's a good thing for us to to keep in mind that um that's a good thing so well you know biblically uh you know it says you've got to have two or three witnesses it you can't go yeah uh, he said she said right you know so i think that that in itself is wise yeah but um you notice that we had uh, some spots in there where they were saying, well, Tracy, you can't do that because yeah. they'll throw it out. Right. You know, or you can't do it this way. Or yeah. they would, and they would bring people in. Uh, I'm going to say back in the 30s, mm-hmm. it was a lot different than what it is now. Very much different. As far as I think that the police had... A little more leeway they definitely had a lot more respect yeah than they do nowadays 
Yeah, and I think part of that has to do with, I mean, it's difficult because it's just changed so much over, you know, the past couple of decades. I mean, the reality is, is that uh, police are called a lot more often than they were back in the day. You know, typically if there was a domestic dispute or something like that, the police normally wouldn't be called, you know, for better or for worse. That just what was the situation. And uh, it wasn't until the 1960s where you had things like Miranda rights and a couple other things that were established with the Supreme Court saying, hey, you know, even though we're apprehending criminals, we still they it doesn't mean their rights get revoked at that point. You know, they still have the right to an attorney, remain silent, those things. And up until that time, the police didn't even have to remind them of those rights when they arrested them. And so um, that is something that I think is a good thing in general. Because the fact is, is that, you know, I, I would rather a guilty person go free uh, than have an innocent person, you know, get uh, punished. So I'd rather err on that side of the innocent than the, the guilty. Right. Well, it's like you said, it's supposed to be innocent until proven guilty. That's right. So if you're going to be arrested, yeah. you know, you're still innocent until they can prove that you are guilty. Right. Yeah. My problem with the way the system works nowadays is that the... Defense lawyers have come up with too many gray areas that, uh, you know, well, it's not his fault. He watched uh, crime dramas. He watched all 20 seasons of Law and Order, and that's why he did this murder, because it affected his brain. Yeah, or, I don't you think, know, yeah, some I, of that stuff like that is just, you know. Well, I well, I'd say two things. Number one, I doubt an excuse like that would ever fly in a court of law. Like I, I've never seen somebody get away with that because they said TV. Right, but whatever. what I'm saying that I'm not necessarily TV, but I'm just bringing that point out that uh, they come up with a lot of crazy things, or that he's got this. Uh, issue like uh, ADAH or whatever ADHD or this made him the way that he is. Yeah, that like I said, I, I don't think that. Also, I've never seen that be you know that fly in, in a court. So, but but right, but, 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 but how often is, have you been in court? Well, I mean, not a lot to be fair, but I, I'm sure that if uh, we would see those. Um, things come out i mean i I do read reports of what happened in courts right so but but my my point is that even if you have defense lawyers bringing up things that you know theoretically could be it what what that does is just it makes the prosecution have to work uh, harder 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 and i think that is a good thing It, it it i would rather have a prosecution be really sharp and get this person on uh, something that is incontrovertible than them putting some circumstantial evidence together and put them away when they haven't actually proved their case. I, I want the prosecution to be to, to make a, a compelling case beyond the reasonable doubt to put somebody away. And we already talked about, I think we talked about it in our Black Panther episode, how I think jail or prison, I should say, not jail, prison is unjust anyway. You know, you, you shouldn't lock people up for crimes that uh, where they should be restoring the person that they offended. If they can restore it, if they can't restore it, then obviously it's a capital offense. Uh, you know, so this this thing where you, you just lock people up for the rest of their lives, I think, is unjust anyway. Right. Well, uh, again, we we see the uh, gray areas when we have court battles that are in the TV every day for months and months and months and months mm-hmm. with uh, no end in sight sometimes. Like the OJ case, how long it took for them to uh, settle that case? You yeah, remember but, I well, I mean, it took a, a long time, right? Uh, well, it did, but I think a lot of that had to do with the fact of the people involved, and not necessarily, you know, if it was just some nobody that did that, I think it would have been a much faster case. It had, you know, just the fact that you had not only OJ Simpson, a very famous person, but you also had the uh, lawyers that he was able to afford in order to make the, the 
case lasts as long as it did. So that, and I do think that there was also some political things going on there in the broader picture. Of course, I was a child at the time, so, you know, I can't, I don't have a whole lot of clarity around that. So, but, but I, right. I know that there's other, a lot of, but other there's other on. cases. Uh, what is the Casey, uh, uh, whatchamacallit case with the daughter that they were prosecuting the mother, right? Yeah, there's been know. a number of cases like that. I'm just saying, yeah, that those types of things are things that, you know, if there's evidence to prove it, you know, you can't get around it, you know, but they do somehow. But I guess again, that's the lawyer. Well, yeah, but, you, okay. you, you do your job because that's the thing. Even even as a defense attorney, if your client is guilty. You know, your responsibility might not necessarily, you know, your responsibility is to make sure that the state does their job in prosecuting and, and bringing the proper case. If they don't do that, it is not, you know, your fault. It, it, it's really the fault of them. And you have to make them actually prove the case. It, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. There sh- it should be an adversarial system. Innocent until proven guilty. Right. And the other thing we should say is that when the verdict is passed, it's not innocent. It's not guilty. That's a different. Not guilty is not the same as innocent. And I think that's an important distinction to make. Right. Okay. So, would you say though that you see the thing I was pointing going to point out? I meant to point out was that actually uh, one of our church members, uh, a friend of mine, his son is just graduated from high school last year, and he's going into the army. Okay. I discussed. I talked with him. Uh, his scores were not real high, so he chose that he was going to uh, be an animal handler, you know, a dog handler or whatever, canine. I guess they have something called the canine corps or something. Okay. Uh, but I, when I talked with him today, because actually this was his last Sunday, he's going to uh, his boot camp uh, starting next week. Actually, with COVID-19, they go to boot camp. Right, they, have uh, they are cool, yes yeah. for two weeks. Yep, but still they work them. Right, but they work them under quarantine. Right. Anyways, I asked him, "Well, are you going to be a lifer?" And he said, "Yeah." And so again, we're talking about a eighteen-year-old young man who, mm-hmm. at the age of thirty-eight, could retire from the service. Right. With a full pension. Right. And if he chose to, could become a police officer. Mm-hmm. And work the canine corps there with his experience. Sure, he would, you know, be able to have a great job. Well, right. our discussion today was that I'm going to stay in the service until they kick me out, uh-huh. because the way that people treat the police now, I would not want to be a police officer. Yeah, no, I get well, that, and which is sad to me because yeah. Again, I think, like I had said, back in the older times, there was more respect for police officers. So, yeah, and I I think that it that is a wise thing to consider uh, with these current times. All I will say is that a ton can change in 20 years. So by the time, you know, 2020, 2040 rolls around, uh, the police might have a completely different, you know, standing in, in the city. Like, I, I have a feeling that, you know, what's going to end up happening is as the police draws back more, chaos is going to just increase and people are going to have a newfound appreciation for uh, the police and what they did. And so hope what I'm hoping is that uh, we have leaders in the church who will serve as a prophetic voice to the government to say hey this is how this is what god says about how you are to um be the uh minister of god and what is explained in romans 13 when paul talks about the the government or the civil magistrate being god's avenger he doesn't wield the sword in vain things like that and so uh there'll be an influence there and as like i said as lawlessness increases when they come back they come back with a little bit more restraint when it comes to making sure they're holding to biblical principles. That's what I would like to see. And, um, you know, if it takes, you know, everything kind of uh, devolving into chaos for a while, then Lord wills it, Lord wills it. Right. Well, as uh, Christians, we rely on the Lord and we know that he has got a purpose. 
Right. Greater than our purpose. Indeed. So we will uh, just follow our leaders as God tells us, you know, to be respectful of our leaders. Right. Which I would say that we should all be that way. But yeah, like you say, you don't know. They could be patrolling around in rocket packs. And if that's the case, I think (laughs) I would like to be a police officer. Sure. But uh, yeah, that would be cool. We could be rocketeers, you know. Yeah. And just call me Captain uh, Cody. Right. Or Commando Cody. Yeah. Which is a neat serial that they did that was similar to Rocketeer. Yep. Uh, but anyways, any other thoughts? No, I think that, that, that does it. I mean, we're, we're, I think we've uh, thoroughly discussed the, the film and the thematic elements of it. So I think we're good. Okay. Well, in that case, then... I think that uh, we're going to have to give it some kind of a rating then. Sure. And uh, I guess I could go first. It's yeah. All right. With me. Uh, yeah. I do have to say that uh, it was a thoroughly enjoyable movie. Yeah. And uh, love the makeup, love the artwork, love the cars, uh, and everything about it, the acting was done well story was so so it was the same story that i've seen a hundred times in different police movies as a matter of fact when i see you next i'm going to play a dick tracy movie from the 50s okay that when you it's only an hour long but once you see it you'll say oh my gosh that's a similar story even though it's not right you know but enough of it the same I'm going to go with a six and a half on this, 6.5. Yeah. All right. Good deal. Uh, Yeah. So for me, uh, it's going to be a six. So it is better than average. Uh, I like so many things about the movie that I wish I liked the movie more, you know, but, but like we discussed the, the story for me, I think it could have, yeah, exactly. It could have been, I think a lot better, but I think in order for that to happen, uh, you'd have to, I think a lot of times, like I said, I got spoiled from the way storytelling has happens now. It's a lot different. So, um, you know, it would be interesting to see what they could do with it uh, nowadays. I could actually see this being a, um, a, a limited run series on, you know, one of the streaming channels. I could see them doing a pretty interesting thing. It might even be better as a cartoon uh, with a very unique, uh, um, you know. Art style. Uh, and a like a DC cartoon that's more adult than it is uh, for younger kids or for yeah uh, young older teens to young adults. I can uh, see that. Yeah, that would work really well. I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it would also allow Warren Beatty to still be the voice of Dick Tracy, even though he's you know I think he's way too old actually to be Dick Tracy now. But he if he's still like dead set on being him. You know, he could voice it, you know, kind of similar to how Adam West did it just before he, you know, um, left Passed us. on. Yes. Right. Yeah, I think so. he did two of those movies Adam right. West did. Right. So I, I think that actually that's kind of the direction I would like to see it go if uh, we're going to see that. And, uh, you know, I, I think there is something there, like you said. And, you know, uh, it the time has passed long enough to where... You know, there's a whole new generation where this will be as fantastical as a, you know, a, a sci-fi series almost because this this time period is so far removed from the the cultural, you know, zeitgeist. You know that they right. Really it would do. be a, it would be like a noir thing. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Which we don't have a whole lot of nowadays. No. no. And as a matter of fact, I would say it would be a great. 10 to 13 episode Netflix series. Right. Which would be just fine with me. Yep. They could do it as an anime or as a CG thing. Possibly. You know, they have they have a they have a couple of studios that do just that. Yeah. Where they have their original anime stuff or Yeah. Uh which some good, some not so good. So Right. Right. Anyways. Okay. Cool. All right. All right. Good deal. 
All right, so uh, we will make sure that there is an announcement on social media for our next episode. We're still kind of working through a couple different things, so look out for that. But in the meantime, we do want to thank you for joining us for another episode of Pops Collection. If you have any feedback in the meantime, please uh, feel free to email us at popscollectionpodcast.gmail.com. Drop us a like on Facebook, a follow on Twitter, leave us a review on iTunes, and uh, we'll see you next week. Goodbye and God bless. Goodbye, God bless, and tell your friends.